0: The co host of Pull Quotes. And I'm Ralph Farawi, the other half of Pull Quotes, uh, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long form stories. Game on. So, Gabe, uh, who did you chat with this week? Yeah, this week on the podcast, we've got Jeff Dembicki. Um, Jeff's a climate justice reporter who's published stories about the forthcoming climate apocalypse in the New York Times, the Thai, uh foreign policy, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So is the story you chatted about also about climate? Yes, true. It also is about climate. Um, in particular, mm-hmm. it's about uh, how an undercover cop infiltrates UK climate justice movements um, and the impact that that kind of policing had on those movements. Mm -hmm. So what stuck out to you in the interview? Yeah, I I was really interested in the origin story for this piece. Um, Jeff talks about being at Black Lives Matter marches after George Floyd was killed um, and trying to figure out how to tell a story that would link climate justice and policing Uh, And this story was the result. Cool. Uh, I'm excited to hear it. All right, let's do it. All right, Jeff, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining
1: me. Yeah, thanks for having me on here.
0: Um, So today we're going to be chatting about your most recent piece for Vice. Uh, It is titled, How a Married Undercover Cop Having Sex with Activists Killed a Climate Movement. Which is just like a very wow headline. Like, you read that headline and you're like, holy shit, I'm in for a story here. Um, For folks who haven't yet read this piece, can you sort of tell us in broad brushstrokes about the main characters in the story and what happens?
1: So the story really takes place over the course of a few decades. And the gist of it is that back in the early 2000s, um, UK police sent an officer named Mark Kennedy undercover basically to pretend that he was a climate change activist. And his mission was to gather intelligence on people advocating for solutions to climate change and the environment, and um, and all sorts of things related to that, and the the British police basically were worried about um, eco extremists and other things like that, and mm-hmm. and so Mark Kennedy um, he he changed his hair, um, he invented a backstory. And he set about infiltrating a bunch of radical climate change groups. And one of the main um, tactics that he used was entering into romantic and sexual relationships with women who were in those movements. and that allowed him to gain um, trust and um, and gain and get closer to the people who were making Decisions. And so after seven years of doing this, activists revealed his true identity. The whole thing exploded into public. And then several of the women who had been manipulated and deceived by him took action against the UK police. And after um, nearly a decade, one of those women, Kate Wilson, won a major court battle against. UK police force. And she was recently awarded as of a couple weeks ago, um, a bunch of money and damages. And so mm. the, the whole thing really, it takes place, the story takes place from around like 2003 to, to very recently.
0: And what motivated you to do this story in the first place? Where did this piece come from?
1: So I, like, I, I write about climate change. Um, Full time um, for for a variety of outlets, and I first heard about the Mark Kennedy story back in 2010 when he had been exposed, and and I, I thought at the time, wow, this this is such a, a wild story. This cop pretending to be a climate change activist, and and the, the the story of it just stuck with me over the years, and and I would think about it every now and then. Um, But it it took on a a bit of new meaning for me in the summer of 2020 when there were um, massive protests against the police um, in the U.S. and and worldwide due to police killings of people like George Floyd. And so I, I was listening in on a bunch of conversations in the environmental movement where people were making linkages between a police oppression um, and the climate emergency, and I, I thought those discussions were were super interesting and and super important, but it, it was it was all still you know f- fairly abstract, and I, I I didn't see a way that I could build really a, a compelling story around that, and so. Um I was I was in a meeting with my vice editor in early 2021 and she was asking some of us if we had ideas for bigger more ambitious narrative style pieces around climate change and then that's that's when I remembered um this Mark Kennedy story and I thought this is this is a great way to to tell um, a climate story that's that's also directly relevant um, to to police oppression and um, and to state interfering with with people's free speech um, and and all sorts of other issues and so that that's kind of how the I I got the ball rolling and my, my editor was very mm-hmm. interested in in me doing this piece um, the. The other aspect of this is that I like I didn't I didn't break any news or really discover anything that wasn't already out there, like on the record, Um, because this this had this had already become a huge story over in the UK and Europe due to the um, advocacy and legal fights of of some of the women who had been manipulated by the cop, Mm -hmm. Mark Kennedy but what what i saw when when i when i did a lot of um re- um reading of of the media reporting in in the uk and elsewhere is is that over time some of the political elements have had kind of been stripped away from the story and and had taken on more of like a, a a tabloidy feel and mostly just focused on the more sensational like sexual hmm. aspects of the story and a lot of the reporting kind of just portrayed this as, as like, um, drama between individuals like the, the women and and the rogue cop. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to bring more of like a bigger political climate focus back into the reporting because, you know, Mark Kennedy, um, went undercover for very political reasons. He saw, the climate advocacy of these people as a threat. And then the other thing was I saw that, you know, this story had basically gotten no attention whatsoever in the US and Canada. And so I thought, well, here's the one, the thing I could contribute to the reporting is, is bringing it over here, mm-hmm, um, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: And how did you go about finding sources for this piece and reporting this story out?
1: And The, the main thing I, I did when I was reaching out to people initially was, was to kind of explain what, what I had just explained now, that I'm a climate journalist, I'm based in, in New York at the moment, and I'm, I'm interested in bringing this predominantly UK, Europe story into a North American Context. Hmm. And how did folks respond to that? Well, the the first person I I reached out to was this guy named Jason. He's quoted in the piece, and he he was pretty interested um, in in having the the story reach a new audience because um, this undercover policing that was happening in the UK. I mean, it's definitely not isolated to just um, to just that country mm-hmm. um there's there's long histories of rcmp and and fbi infiltrating um social movements and, and environmental groups over here um so i think he sh- he shared my interest in in having this this story um reach more people and in more groups and and the reason I, I reached out to him first is because um he's in the process of um creating a documentary about undercover policing in Mark Kennedy called Spied Upon. Mm. And he had posted a bunch of different interview clips on the documentary's website um with, with various people who who were involved with the climate movement. Um and and so I figured well if If Jason has already done all these interviews and and knows all these people, then he probably has like a good, Hmm. you know, bird's eye perspective on this whole story. So he's the first person I got in touch with. Mm -hmm.
0: Right on. Uh, It seems like you were able to interview Kate Wilson for the story. Uh, Kate is one of the women who had a relationship with Kennedy, the cop, while he was undercover. Um, And Wilson has been through Um, As you reported, nearly a 10-year legal battle around the impact of that sort of uh, cop work on her and other women. Um, She has said, as you reported in your piece, that uh, the interaction with Kennedy, her relationship with Kennedy, was like a computer virus that affected all of her memories. Um, Can you talk about how you were able to get Kate to speak with you and how you approached that interview in terms of being sensitive to her experience going through something as traumatic as this
1: that was definitely um a sensitive interview to do and I think I I don't think she would have wanted to to speak with me if I hadn't been in touch with a few of the other activists over a a period of of several months and and had you know long conversations with them and and sort of communicated where I was coming from them with this piece. And, and, and when I, when I spoke with Kate, I said that um, I'd be drawing most of the material about the personal aspects of her relationship with Mark Kennedy from stuff she had already Hmm. said on the record. She had, you know, written op-eds in the guardian, um, and and done other public appearances where she discussed the relationship, and and so I I said that I was mainly interested in in discussing some of her um, political thoughts about this, um, which which is kind of in keeping with me wanting to to bring more of like a higher level climate or or political angle to the piece, and so I I asked you know I I asked how how the Kennedy stuff had, had affected um, her political activism Mm -hmm. over the years. um, And, you know, what, what the end, what the, the judgment had, had meant in, in terms of um, closure um, and, and whether she still does any, any climate organizing. And so that, that's mostly the stuff that we, that we talked about in, in our conversation.
0: And how did you approach um, offering anonymity with sources in this story? Um, several of the climate organizer sources go on record. Um, at least one does not. And for one of the sources, uh, you use a pseudonym. Um, when did you offer it? How did you negotiate those terms with your sources? And were there many folks who were keen to stay anonymous who, you know, over time, uh, became more comfortable with going on record for the story.
1: Yeah, usually, usually people were pretty upfront um, at the beginning of the interview whether they wanted to be on record or off record, and some people said, "Let's keep this on background, and then we can decide later um, what what you'd like to use in in terms of a quote and." You know, gen, generally, um, I I think as as a journalist, it's kind of like case by case how you make those sorts of calls. Um, if if I was interviewing someone who led a government or or a corporation or anything like that, I'd I'd be more inclined to just say like, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, whatever you say to me, I'm probably gonna print or sure. or put on the record but you know when when to do to do a story like this where a lot of events are are highly personal for people and and there's they're still active in in these activist communities and potentially police are still monitoring some of these people I, I tried to be to be attuned to that and um, like the person um, who we used the pseudonym for, he was closely related to a lot of um, really really important events around Mark Kennedy. He was part of a small group of people who who helped expose the cop and made it public. And and so I've, I felt like having that person's voice in the story was was really important. And you know ultimately I, I don't think having a pseudonym um, detracted at all from from the importance of the of the things he was saying
0: mm-hmm. um, since being outed as a cop uh, Kennedy has said lots on the In the public domain, some of it is, like, pretty colorful stuff. He did a multi-hour kind of tell-all interview with the UK's Daily Mail. Uh, He talked about how his wife and son have reacted to the stories being published, um, things about his mental health, that kind of thing. Um, That is certainly material that could, like, add life to what is already, like, a really detail-rich, colorful draft. I'm curious how you chose what to include and what to not include.
1: Yeah, with Kennedy it's it's kind of difficult because um the, the judicial sorry the judicial body that was um deciding on Kate Wilson's case pretty much acknowledged that Mark Kennedy is a highly unreliable narrator. I mean he's he spent seven years pretending to be someone he wasn't. Um, so he's essentially like he's, he's a professional when it, when it comes to saying things that aren't true. But that, that said, um, you know, he had done a lot of on the record interviews in the early years after being outed. And I thought it was useful to include some of that stuff in the piece. Um, Partly because there, there were there were some times when he was the only person speaking to a specific event, and and other times I I thought it was just interesting to to see how um, he attempted to to portray his role in some of these undercover operations, and I mean part part of what's what's interesting about the narrative arc of of this story, is that when he was, when Mark Kennedy was first outed, the the whole thing was kind of treated as this, like, silly, like, spy scandal. And Kennedy even hired a celebrity publicist, and he was was going around doing all of these interviews that were attempts to make him look um, really sympathetic. He would say things like, I shouldn't have fallen in love with these women, but I, I couldn't help it. Um, at one point, he did an interview with Rolling Stone, and and they they kind of portrayed the whole thing as like a bit of a farce. Mm. Um, it, was, it was the story was full of like metaphorical like winks and stuff at the reader. But then I I think one thing that really happened is is that you know our cultural understanding of what Mark Kennedy was actually doing shifted a lot over that past decade. Um, It's especially with things like Me Too and, you know, a closer examination of like racial and and gender inequalities in our society. And and when you look at what he did from today's perspective, it's a lot less silly and a lot more, you know, disturbing mm-hmm. because it's he's an agent of the state and he's coercing women into sexual relationships that they don't have the ability to fully consent to and and he's doing that to undermine their legitimate right to organize politically and even worse than that is that these people are trying to wake up society to deal with the climate emergency, which is already causing tens of thousands of, of deaths and all sorts of damage around the world. Um, and so I think the way people view the story now is, is a lot more in, in a way that, or they view it as a lot more disturbing and sinister than they might have 10 years ago. Sure.
0: Yeah, you mentioned off the top that, like, part of what brought you into the story was thinking about um, how to tie sort of policing stories with climate stories. I'm curious, after having now been so deep in this one for many months, what you're thinking about in terms of uh, other ways that you or other climate-focused journalists can, like, engage readers in stories at the intersection between. Um, the carceral system or cops and climate change?
1: I mean, I, I would love it if I had another one, just like ready to go. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's something I'll be thinking about more definitely over the next few weeks and months, but what, like one, one kind of interest, or there's, there's been a few, a few interesting reactions to this piece. Um, one of them is we, we figured like people would be interested in reading it, but the, the, the initial reaction to it was, um, was a lot bigger than, than at least I expected because it, it was like the top story on Vice for a few days. And, you know, with, within the first, I think, four or five days, like over 130,000 people had read it. And I think it's, wow. it's quite higher than that even now. Um, and, and even though it was, it was a UK piece, um, a whole bunch of environmental and social justice and, and other organizations in, in the U S and Canada use the story as, as a way to share their own experiences with undercover policing, um, and, and share links to, other examples of undercover cops that people had kind of forgotten about. Um, A few people even got in touch with me directly and said they suspected that their organizations had been infiltrated and asking for resources and I said obviously I'm not an an expert in any of that Um, and tried to point them to organizations that deal with that specifically. Um, And but I, I I think at a at a broader level, um, you know, pe- people are pretty people are pretty interested these days in in stories that can really sort of humanize climate change or, or tell a, a compelling narrative around the climate emergency, and and with with this Kennedy piece, like not only does it show um, how, you know, a national government uses its police force to stifle legitimate political consent around the climate. Um, it, it also, it's, it, it shows that, like, you know, everyday complex people are working on climate change all the time and and they they have fascinating and and nuanced stories to tell, um, and so in like in in this piece, I, I just wanted to bring more of like a, a human dimension to climate change and, and try to do something that was a bit more compelling in a narrative sense than than a lot of the other climate stuff out there, including lots of stuff that I've written. <laughs> Fair enough,
0: yeah. Um- very often the night before my stories get published, I sleep really badly. Uh, my brain is like going over all the details. It's like, did I mess this up? How will this person who's cited my story feel about how they show up in the piece? That kind of thing. Um, what was one thing that made you nervous um, about this story before it was published?
1: I guess I, I always get nervous about whether the people in it are, are going to feel like I did a good job representing them. Um and you know a, after the the piece came out i I think among like the activist circles who were directly involved with mark kennedy um there was there was a there was some discussion in there about whether they liked the framing of the piece or not, um especially especially the the headline which which really obviously grabs a lot of people um and you know some of the people that that I interviewed were were really happy with the piece and, and promoted it widely and 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 other people I I had conversations with um about some of the conclusions the piece draws and you know some some people felt that it was you know a, a bit too pessimistic and that um you know the the climate movement had had still survived in in the UK um and it, it it wasn't quite right to say that that Kennedy had had killed it outright um but i mean i yeah i was it's it's interesting when when a piece like this kind of blows up the way it did cuz all these people come to it from different experiences and, and with, with different conclusions about it. Um, but what, what, what I was happy about is that, is that so many people over here in the US and Canada you know, found it useful and that, that it triggered a lot of um, new conversations about climate change and, and policing um so in in that sense, I felt that it was it was it was a success
0: mm-hmm. I'd love to zoom out from this story a little bit Wee bit like you've been doing climate reporting for a long while now. um I'd love to start back at the beginning i'm I'm curious like when you first realized that you wanted to be a reporter.
1: I think since I was in high school, probably yeah, like grade eleven grade 12, because I, I was always interested in in reading and writing. And when it came time to choose a university, I decided I wanted to go into journalism. And then I ended up going to Carleton Journalism School.
0: Okay. And uh, how did you get into climate reporting? Was that always your beat? Or did that evolve over time?
1: It, it definitely wasn't always my beat. But I... I think it's it's just like due to the unique circumstances of the time that I graduated in because like I graduated in 2008, which was a pretty terrible time. I mean, I guess it's all terrible <laughs> these days um, that that felt bad in a particular way to me because the recession had just hit and all these newsrooms were closing around the country. And I, I didn't really see a way to get a job in any sort of traditional media. Um, but I, I'm, I'm from Alberta originally and I wanted to move out to the West Coast. And um, I started an internship at this really great media outlet called the Taiyi. And they, they were doing only online stuff at the time, which is it's it's hilarious because that felt like really out there and experimental. Like, ooh, only internet <laughs> had to like explain that to people. Um, it's not that long ago, <laughs> and 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 I started writing for them covering the Vancouver Olympics actually, hmm. um, and and when when the Olympics were over, I. I had to decide like what I wanted my my new beat to be. And um, my editor there, David Beers, suggested I start writing about climate change and the oil sands because um, a lot of debates around that were really heating up. And there were companies proposing these big pipelines to the West Coast, like social movements, mobilizing against that. And since I was already from Alberta, I I felt like I had a a bit of a window into that culture because a lot of my friends and family had had worked in oil and gas over the years, and so I I really got started writing about all of that stuff in like 2010 or so.
0: Hmm. Mm, okay. Uh, I'm curious. You know, you're a journalist who has written pretty frankly about your own opinions about like where we're headed with the climate crisis. Um, You wrote a piece for the New York Times titled, Trump has declared climate war, but my generation will win. You wrote a book that had, you know, a bunch of your opinions in it. I'm curious how this kind of opinion writing has shaped um, if at all, the stories that you have been able to report uh, around the climate, on the climate, and the p- places you've been able to report them. Like, I guess I'm curious, have there ever been places where you've been keen to pitch reported pieces on the climate that have said no because of the opinion pieces that you've written?
1: No, that's never happened. And and if anything, bringing more of my personal self into re- my reporting has has helped it reach has helped my writing reach more readers and and open up opportunities for me. And I I think I think like the. This this idea of like the completely objective journalist like voice from nowhere, um, to me that, you know, in in some circumstances, that's that's still that's still a good position to have, but it, it, it kind of feels a bit outdated. Um, and especially in the sense of, like, you know, I, I do a lot of writing about climate change disinformation and the way, like, bad faith actors use the media to to spread denial of the emergency and, and other things. And in a lot of those bad faith actors, like, deliberately try to exploit this like old school idea of journalists objectivity Hmm. um, in, in order to get like pretty damaging messages out in front of millions of people. And so like, like the classic example of that um, is um, in the 2000s, how journalists would be under intense pressure if they interviewed anyone talking about climate change to also interview someone who says mm. climate change isn't real right um and and so that that was like deliberately trying to exploit this like we talk to both sides right. um aspect of journalism but you know have having said all that you know i i'm i'm not just gonna like put something out into the world that's not Factually supported. I think I, I'm I'm coming at the issue from a pretty clear perspective of wanting aggressive action on climate change and and being quite worried about the future of the planet. Um, but it, if everything I I write is is carefully vetted. I investigate any claim, whether it comes from an environmental group or an oil company or a politician, and you know ultimately i'm i'm writing on on behalf of myself and 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 not you know in in service of of some larger interest
0: that seems about as good a place as any to end it jeff thanks so much for uh making the time to be on the podcast
1: thanks for having me on
0: All right, and that is your episode of the podcast for this week. Poll Quotes is published by The Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Rahaf Farawi and me, Gabe Oatley. Our podcast team also includes Andrew Oliphant and Annika Foreman. Technical audio support is provided by Angela Glover and web support by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata, music by Harrison Ammer. Join us back here in about 10 days time for the next episode.